Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Say Why to Drugs. Today I'm joined by Lydia Davenport and Professor Graham Henderson for this episode, who are both involved with Bristol Drugs Project. Drugs projects exist all over the country. They're partly there to help people who want to quit or cut down their use, so people who have problems with drug use. But Bristol Drugs Project is also really into harm reduction. I've been aware of them for a while, and so this little gap in the regular schedule seemed like a great opportunity to have a chat with them about what they do. So without further ado, let's say why to Bristol Drugs Project. Say why to drugs with Dr. Susie Gage. Yeah, we're rolling. And I'm really excited to be joined by two people heavily involved in the Bristol Drugs Project today, Lydia Davenport and Professor Graham Henderson. So hi, guys. Hiya. Hello. Thank you very much for coming and chatting to me. Um, and really, I just wanted to know, what is Bristol Drugs Project? OK, so it's a drugs agency in Bristol. Uh, we see around 5,000 people a year. Um, so that's anything from people who see themselves as having like a drugs problem that they that they may be addressing over a long time to people who uh, might just pop in for a bit of advice. Um, and there's about 120 staff and about 50 volunteers. So it's quite a big project. And is it the kind of thing where people choose to come in and talk to you? And what sort of services do you offer people who come through your door? The large um, extent of people that come through the doors have chosen to be there. Yeah, we offer like, so all of the stuff that you would kind of traditionally expect a drugs project to have. So we do um, prescribing for people, um, opiate substitution therapy, so people that are wanting to come off opiates like heroin. Um, And we do structured group work, so kind of supporting people to change their behaviour around their drug and alcohol use. We support people with alcohol. Uh, so whether wanting to control it or stop drinking and have a have an alcohol detox. Um, but we also do kind of uh, things that I guess are less associated with a traditional drugs project, like uh, we go out to festivals and clubs and give people advice about what they're using. We kind of do short sessions for people who are wanting to stop uh, using something, whether that's powder cocaine, cannabis, tobacco, Um, So we do kind of a big range of things and we also have like an LGBT service, things like that. So we try and cover kind of whatever somebody might want help with around substance misuse in Bristol. So it's a drugs project is a kind of thing and there are lots of them that exist all around Mm -hmm. the country. Yep. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's loads of different types. I mean, ours has a harm reduction focus. So we don't try to kind of, we don't have a specific philosophy apart from evidence-based and wanting to reduce harm and supporting people to change kind of whatever their goal is. So some people that might be becoming abstinent. For a lot of people, it might be just getting a bit more control um, and feeling like they've got uh, kind of more options around what they're doing with their drug or alcohol use. And Graham, what's your involvement with the Bristol Drugs Project? Well, a year or so ago, I was invited down to come and talk to some of the clients and just tell them about how the brain works and how drugs work in the brain and what what changes might um, be induced by taking drugs. And just people who are on drugs and in therapy really want to understand what's going on in their brain. And so I just try to help out with that. Excellent. That seems like a great relationship then between the sort of the drugs project and the academic world, because you're part of Bristol University, is that right? Do you want to tell us a bit about your day job? Yes, my, my day job is to teach students how drugs work, many drugs, different types of drugs. But my research interest has been for a long time in how opiate drugs work, both in the treatment of pain and in the uh, induction of, of dependence. And what's the sort of opiate use patterns like in Bristol? Is it a drug that's a particular problem or particularly heavily used? Yeah, there's a there's quite a high level of heroin use in Bristol. I mean, high in the in in the sense of nationally, it's one of the places where there's the most heroin use. And there's also a specific trend in Bristol where people use heroin and crack together, which is kind of not as usual. Um, throughout the country but then it is kind of there's a thing there's a lot of discussion at the moment about heroin being an aging uh, kind of drug taking population so uh, people using heroin it is kind of gradually getting smaller as those people kind of grow older and less young people pick it up but it is still quite a big big thing in Bristol yeah. I mean nationally the number of people who died from overdose declined over about a three-year period but that just coincided with a time when the purity of the drug really came down. Mm. And in the last couple of years, the number of deaths has shot back up again. Mm. So there is a problem nationally about overdose deaths. Mm. I was reading um, about a new nationwide initiative to try and get, um, was it naloxone, Mm -hmm. to get people who are who know a user to be able to sort of teach them how to do these kind of injections. Mm. Is that something that Bristol Drugs Project have been kind of involved with trialling or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, we are a big fan of uh, naloxone. So we, um, over the last few years, really, have been working really hard to get naloxone out. Um, so anyone that is on methadone or subutex, so their opiate substitution therapies, we um, will prescribe them some naloxone. Uh, we trained loads of kind of hostels and homeless shelters um, and places like that so that people are just ready to do that. And also we kind of train family and friends of people in treatment so that if they come across an overdose, they're able to reverse it because nobody should die of an opiate overdose. It's reversible. And we also kind of get called out in the local vicinity of where our agency is to deliver the injection and bring someone back to life, which is quite amazing. So, Graham, how does naloxone work in that sort of... How, how can it bring someone back to life? Well, naloxone blocks the action of, uh, of heroin uh, by just simply occupying the site in the brain that heroin would work on. So just heroin can't get on anymore. 
And it is really amazing when you see mm. somebody who's completely, you know, breathing about one or so twice a minute in blue, just a dose of naloxone and they just come straight back up again. That's incredible. But it's not, it doesn't have the same sort of effects as something like heroin. It's no, it has not, no effects. Yeah. So if you just give naloxone to somebody, nothing happens. It, it just blocks the action of heroin. So you have to have the heroin there to see any effect of naloxone. That's amazing. And that's, I guess that's the kind of thing that a drugs project can do. Are there any like specifically Bristol type drugs or sort of things that you guys have had to deal with specific to Bristol in your drugs project? Yeah, I guess um, there are always kind of trends that come up in certain cities. And although they might be kind of part of a national trend, maybe Bristol sees them first or, or, or they've become a problem. So ketamine was like a huge mm. thing in Bristol um, in the late 2000s. Um, it kind of disappeared for a while and, and seems to be coming back kind of anecdotally. But there was a real, yeah, real problem with people taking ketamine. They were coming into the project and reporting lots of problems, dependency, physical issues to do with it. And it was kind of a case at the time that there wasn't loads of academic research and there wasn't loads of practical harm reduction advice about it. So it was kind of quite interesting, but it was a case of like gathering the intelligence that clients were kind of bringing um really listening to them and really kind of like exploring with them what was going on and then kind of taking it to researchers um and different places like that to try and get some good advice around it so a lot of people have heard of the bristol bladder or the kind of the effects that ketamine have on the bladder um and that was something where people at BDP were seeing all these people coming in with um, that were quite young and otherwise quite healthy, taking a lot of ketamine, and they were having these kind of cystitis-like symptoms, uh, lots of pain when they urinated or needing to go to the loo loads and loads. And kind of people were putting it together and saying to other workers, have you got like two or three young men with like this problem around urination and then we realized it was a bit of a thing and um went to the bri which is a hospital in bristol and spoke to the urology department and they were just incredible and i think we linked up a bit with the university as well to to kind of find out what research was already going on and what was known use all of that feedback to take back to our clients and say okay we're starting to understand what's going on these are some things that can help but it was really a case of like trying to to, to listen to the clients and, and hear their experience and flag that up to GPs in the hospital because they had no idea why they were seeing so many like young people with bladder problems. This is amazing. See, I love the joined up thinking yeah. of working, sort of seeing the, the people who are using the drugs and then speaking to the sort of hospital and mm. the researchers mm. and trying to join up all the dots to create an idea of, of what these substances are doing. It's just it's music to my ears. Yeah, it's good, <laughs> isn't it? So, so very recently, I was down, well, recently, about two years ago, I was down at BDP and one of the care workers asked me why the, the heroin addicts in Bristol were now starting to take two drugs called gabapentin and pregabalin. Mm. And now gabapentin and pregabalin were, were, first of all, introduced as anti-epileptic agents, but they were quite useful in people who had chronic pain. But nobody had ever realised that they might be abused drugs. Mm -hmm. So we sent a researcher down to interview um, heroin users at the Needle Exchange Clinic at BDP and uh, asked them you know, what they thought about gabapentin and pregabalin and how they used it and so on. And we discovered that they thought it enhanced the effects of heroin, but also that it would make heroin more dangerous. So we came back to the lab and studied that under control conditions, and it's true. And so it is a problem. And we've just had the figures out for 2015 
there were 140 sudden deaths, poison, drug poisonings, where the coroner discovered that gabapentin or pregabalin w- was involved. And of those, 80% were also using heroin, mm-hmm. or heroin was in the blood. So there is a real problem there. And, and I think that was a, it's a, a very good example of, of BDP spotting something mm-hmm. really early on and so that we could become involved in researching and it. And try and work out sort of the science behind what was actually going on. So I guess what I was also really interested in is how you deal with kind of new drugs that come up. And I guess this is, we've sort of mm. touched on this already, but things like the last two episodes of the podcast have been about synthetic cannabinoids, mm. so things like spice, and then synthetic cathinones, so things like mephedrone. Mm. What's, what's the first sort of thing that happens when a new drug kind of appears on the scene or is do you notice it quite quickly? Do you yeah, think? we notice it quite quickly. Um, we have like a lot of clients that kind of, like early adapters I get like people that kind of pick up on drug trends quite quickly Mm -hmm. we are really keen on listening to people about what's going on so like we'll always kind of try and keep up to date with academic research and also in contact with other agencies across the country and internationally like what are you guys seeing are you seeing anything new coming up um so spice is a, a good example where so that's a synthetic cannabinoid and um we were seeing like loads of people coming in with all of these symptoms we just had no idea like what was going on Mm -hmm. and and we tried to do some research and it turned out really nobody had any idea what was going on so um we quickly got together kind of focus groups where we would um invite clients in say anyone using spice come down on this day at this time and um, we'll facilitate a discussion. So at that stage, it's just asking people, what are you experiencing? Uh, trying to figure out if there's any general trends, because there could be things that people are experiencing for other health reasons or you know other medication they're taking. Uh, so it's not an exact science at that stage, but just trying to get people in a room. And we were figuring out um, there were some things like fitting and kind of much um, higher anxiety and things like that we were seeing. So then, again, we'd be feeding that back to to hospitals and GPs just saying keep an eye out for this stuff Mm -hmm. what are you guys seeing and now there is a bit more research coming out about it which we're able to kind of match up but we use that really just to give us an idea of possible best practice when you don't know when there's no solid evidence yet for what to do we just try to um, kind of use general ideas of harm reduction ask the clients and come up with something that seems sensible and suggest that and that's what we did around spice I really love this as well because it's something that I've noticed as I've been putting these podcasts up Mm. that the people who know the most about these substances tend to be the people who are using them which I guess shouldn't really be a surprise Mm. but it's also really easy for myths and stuff to grow up alongside that so it's really great to have the combination of asking the people who've got the most experience but then also applying the scientific method sort of to that yeah because you you hear all sorts of things that uh, totally you know not true mm. um and and myths definitely great you know there's you kind of talk about them in your podcast there are all sorts of myths about you know ketamine and spice really any drug mm. and so especially when there's a bit of like media panic about things going on it's quite hard uh, initially to figure out what really is an effect of the drug so we try and be really careful at the beginning about not buying into a panic and and just remembering that um whatever the specific harm reduction advice you're giving the kind of mechanisms of addiction and behavior change and misuse are often 
the same, whatever the drug. So we we still try and work on the stuff about, you know, not taking risks unnecessarily um, and, like, thinking about whether people want to change their behaviour or they're happy as they are, that kind of thing, rather than getting into a big flap about what people are worrying about and, oh, my God, is this going to happen? Yeah, I was down at BDP talking to um, people and uh, somebody said, so so why is it that if um, you take heroin, you become tolerant, so you have to take more, you know? But then if you go through detox and come off, if you start the heroin again, so that's like the second time, then the tolerance develops really, really fast, much faster. And this is something I'd never heard anything about. And you can kind of think, well, maybe it's just that they're, they're more experienced, they take bigger doses the second time or so on. But, but we've looked at this, and actually there is a biochemical change in the brain that the second time you take the heroin, having come off it and had a period of when you've been withdrawn, then the, the tolerance really comes on really rapidly. And, and what we really want to know is what's that due to? Because everybody who uh, goes through detox at some point will relapse, you know, because the temptation to take the drug, the memory of it. Right? But what you really want is that for them to get no effect when they relapse. So sometimes they give them something like naloxone, a longer lasting version of naloxone to try and block that out. But if, yeah, But if we could induce this process such that it was already switched on, that the tolerance was there, and mm-hmm. then when they take the drug again, they wouldn't get any effect. And I'm so really excited about studying that. But then I would tell you that nobody in my position throughout the world, scientists studying heroin, has ever heard before that tolerance developed faster the second time. But these guys all knew it. I'm yeah, just... and that to us was like, yeah, I mean, of course, that's that's everybody's experience. Like that was kind of like a common knowledge thing, which is why it's such a like amazing thing to kind of make that link. Yeah. So almost like the kind of like folk wisdom, almost like the things that people learn that we we know, um, and that's kind of a given in the kind of drug using community or, or treatment community can then get explored. And and also there's there's real possibilities there for for um, kind of medical treatment in the future mm. um, and developing new ways of supporting people in their recovery, yeah. which we wouldn't have come up with, obviously, without <laughs> researchers. Because I must admit that I assumed that the first time using heroin after a break would be extremely dangerous for not being tolerant and therefore you'd run the risk of overdose. Yes, yes, that, that we knew about. Mm. But the idea that then if you, if you managed to get through that and mm. take another couple of doses, yeah. that you would become tolerant very yeah. quickly. Mm. And I guess if you could then induce the tolerance immediately, then you would prevent the risk or minimise the risk of overdose yes, as well. So, so yes. another benefit, yeah. Mm, yeah. To bring things sort of right up to date now, there's been lots of reports in the media about MDMA being an awful mm. lot stronger at the moment than it has sort of been historically. Is that something that you guys have, have noticed and have you got sort of ideas of how to help people to deal with that? Yeah, absolutely. That's been a, um, something we're really concentrating on the mom- um, at the moment and quite, quite like solid um, sources like the Global Drug Survey, um, Fiona Misham and the Loop, um, people have, have really seen that there is a, a much kind of higher purity um, about at the moment. We go out to um, festivals like we did Love Save the Day and Tokyo World and stuff like that this Those year. Those festivals in Bristol. Sorry, they're in Bristol, yeah. Um, and a f- 
for about two years, um, 2014 and 15, we went to Boomtown. And we used that as a place to just ask people loads about what they were taking, what the effects were and things like that. And we were really noticing that people were taking like half a tablet of ecstasy and like feeling the effects much, much more than they would have previously. And we were also just quite worried that people were taking what they were used to taking. Uh, You know, someone that might have taken ecstasy a couple of years ago go to a party or a festival and decide, oh, yeah, I'll get, you know, have a pill, would take a pill and then just be like having a really unpleasant experience. You know, again, it's just about getting messages out in a trustworthy way um, to people and in a way that they understand. So, yeah, we have these stalls at festivals where we just chat to people and kind of explain things like that. We have an Instagram and we have a lot of slogans, which mm. are pretty cheesy, but start low, take it slow, um, don't be daft, have a half. Uh, learn before you gun is one of my absolute <laughs> favorites um, because you know people um often like don't really know what they're doing or what they're taking and it, it's a bit of a byproduct i suppose of drugs laws and of um, a lack of conversation about drug use and there's also quite interesting stuff about discussion and research coming out about whether women's tolerances are different to men's for mm. um, mdma and things like that so we just really encourage people to you know do a bit of research themselves um check pill reports, things like that. Because I think it is, um, you know, especially since fabric closing um, and there's been some some deaths over the last year for um, MDMA, kind of more than before, um, it's, it is quite an important message. And it's just as well about, like, not being a buzzkill. Like, we're most people take pills because they want to have a good time. Uh, they don't take them because they want to be gurning in a corner or, like, feeling really unwell. So um, instead of focusing our harm reduction advice on um, this is how not to take risks, this will go wrong, we try and focus it on, you know, how to get the maximum pleasure out of your drug-taking experience. And that is to kind of focus on if you do this, you're probably going to have a better night rather than don't do this, you might or die. Bad yeah, things will happen. Yeah. yeah, it's all about the framing of the message. To exactly. Use the sort of scientific terms. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the risks as well around drug taking is that you feel like you have to keep up with your peers or that mm. kind of thing. So to have the message actually out where the people are likely to be taking yeah. the drugs makes it a lot more easy to sort of keep it in mind when you're actually in that situation where someone's in a bathroom offering you something yeah. or, or that kind of thing rather than saying at home yeah fine but once you get into that situation and it's your friends and you don't mm. want to look like a like like a buzzkill I guess yeah yeah so yeah I think I think that's really great that you're actually there and, and you mentioned the loop there and I mm. think people probably will have heard of that but maybe not necessarily know that much about it and so what you do at festivals isn't quite the same as no. what they do at festivals is yeah it? so what do they do they um do um kind of pill test or or drugs testing so um there's kind of like a kind of a a legal line you have to walk um and so i think the loop um manage it um in a certain way so that they're not doing anything illegal um and it's kind of with the festival or or wherever they are and the police's kind of understanding but they will take a little bit of a drug uh, that somebody's given them and test it and then they will um come back and say to the person uh, or, or kind of say anonymously whoever handed this thing in this is what it's got in it Um, And people then have the decision to make whether they are going to take that drug, go ahead and take it, or whether actually it doesn't really look like that's what they want to be taking, what they were expecting, or it's or it's pretty high dose. So then they'll take a bit, you know, a bit less than they would have. So we don't uh, I mean, that's something certainly we would 
really love to do. Uh, turns out the drug testing um, equipment is pretty expensive. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's our main barrier. Mm. Um, but it's an incredible thing they do um, because they also deliver like a brief intervention or some advice there. It's not just about saying to people, yeah, this is what it's got in. Have, have a great go, time. Yeah. yeah, it's also about like delivering like a reasoned kind of bit of advice with it. If you were to take mm. that, you'd want to make sure you were, you know, sipping a pint of water an hour and, you know, that kind of thing, giving them some solid advice rather than just telling them to kind of crack on. In the Netherlands, this is available in, in many in many yeah. towns and cities and you can put something in and if you're think, planning and taking it at the weekend and, and then get good detailed information back about what's actually in it. Mm. Whereas here, apart from the loop, there's... Really yeah, no other way you can. yeah, and it's really difficult because people will come up to us in a club and say, "Oh, my friend's got these pills. Uh, do you know anything about them?" And like, even if somebody says, you know, at the moment, you know, there'll be a certain pill that we'll have heard, or oh, that's got like three hundred milligrams of um, MDMA in it. So if you, you know, if you see that pill take a quarter, you know, start low with it. But, you know, there's no guarantee that just because one pill is kind of packaged or decorated in a certain way, branded, there's no guarantee that that is... That, yeah. you know that that there's no quality control here yeah no um, regulation whatsoever no yeah. so we can give that advice um but ultimately we don't you know we don't know if if it's got the same kind of makeup as other pills that have been tested in the netherlands and things like that so uh, that's why we have to give people that advice about taking a really small amount do, doing things like testing a batch um in a safe environment taking a small amount um making sure there's friends there to to check on you like maybe somebody not take it just so they're about to keep an eye on everyone but yeah if there was if there was a kind of more in-depth way or or just a more kind of responsible way of testing in the UK that harm reduction advice would be a lot more specific mm. it's not only the, the amount of the MDMA but in some of them you don't even know what's in it at all yeah, there could yeah, be lots yeah. of other things that are pretty nasty yeah mm. a fascinating thing um, that we have found is how many people will take a mystery white powder uh, 2014 I think it was we did a questionnaire with people at Boomtown Festival and um, just asked them what have you taken in the last year what have you taken in the last month what do you regularly take and we found I think it was 11% of people said they regularly regularly take a mystery powder that they have no idea what it is so uh, there were a whole other percentage of people that sometimes do Mm. but I mean if if you think uh, and that's people that admitted it to a drugs worker like a lot of people are regularly taking something you know packets found on the floor being offered a dab by somebody and not knowing what it is and things like that are you know kind of worrying because you just don't know what you're getting you don't know what drug it is you don't know what potency it is and you don't know like what is mixed in with it anything like that but it but that you know there is a huge culture of just being out and on it and wanting to take whatever you can kind of get your hands on which might also be related to the fact that even if you are told what a mm. white powder is it's that not that's not necessarily what it is anyway so right. maybe your idea of of that it being more of a risk if you don't know actually probably you still don't know anyway even yeah. if you've been told yeah. So maybe the risk, sort of idea of relative risk is sort of harder for someone to decide because of that lack of information anyway. Yeah, totally. It's kind of, you you, you know, there there is no safe, totally safe drug taking. Um, we can try and give people good, solid advice mm-hmm. to make it safer. But like you have to acknowledge because of, you know, partly because of the nature of drugs and partly because of people not, you know, being able to test or know what they're taking. Like there is never a guarantee that what you're taking is what you think it is and that it's going to have the same effect it had 
you know, last time you got it. Yeah. But I also like that as part of Bristol Drugs Project, you do include alcohol in there. It's not just mm. illegal or illicit drugs. Alcohol's regulated and yet people can still have problems with it as well. So totally. as you say, no drug taking is, is safe, but mm. there are ways to sort of minimise harm. Yeah, yeah. And it and it feels really important um, to kind of acknowledge the role that alcohol and even tobacco um, can have um, in people's, you know, certainly like the the harm it can cause um, individuals and and family. And actually, it's kind of nice in in the groups that we run um, for for some of the groups, um, like the really structured, um, more long term ones. People are in a group with um, other people who are, may have an alcohol or a drug addiction or or have some history of misuse there. And it's kind of nice because a lot of people um, from really different walks of life um, with really kind of different types of substances they're taking will really identify with each other. And so that kind of artificial um, barrier maybe that we have about alcohol, that's safe, that's okay, drugs are really bad, that kind of gets broken down a bit, which I think is pretty important. Absolutely. I think it's really only the government that try to distinguish between alcohol and drugs Mm -hmm. because people who, who work in dr- on drugs alcohol is a drug yeah, absolutely. and all the studies that have looked at relative harms of drugs alcohol has come out quite high and uh, maybe not as high as cocaine and and, and heroin but um, alcohol is uh, pretty harmful mm. yeah absolutely in that um landmark lancet paper by david nutt and colleagues alcohol mm. if you include harms to the self and harms to society mm. alcohol topped the mm. top the pole admittedly that was slightly driven by harms to society but it's yeah. pretty high harms to the self as well yeah cool well thank you guys so much for coming to talk to me do you want to just tell everyone sort of how they can go about getting in touch with sort of either you guys or perhaps because obviously people aren't just listening in bristol mm-hmm. so how does one go about sort of finding a local drugs project and getting in touch yeah so you could either do a bit of googling for where you are and um, if you go to see your gp they'd always be able to point you in the right direction for bristol drugs project like most agencies we have a website we also have facebook and um, instagram start low take it slow and i think it's really good for drugs agencies and projects to be on things like this because i think a lot of the time people think that um you don't have a drugs problem unless you've got a really heavy heroin addiction or or you're a full-blown alcoholic um and, and most most, you know, drugs agencies are really up for having discussions about people's drug use, whether that's, you know, cannabis, ketamine, whatever you're taking. Um, and, and you don't have to like wait until it's like a huge problem. You can just have a kind of discussion if it's starting to cause you a few problems. Um, so, yeah, going to your GP, Googling, having a little um, look about what's in your area are usually the best ways to find out. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I imagine some people probably wouldn't want to talk about it with their doctor where mm. they might first want to go and talk to someone like like you guys at, at a drugs project where they might feel a little bit less sort of medicalised, yeah. I suppose. So yeah. yeah, get on get on Google. Seems like good advice. Yeah, cool, awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. And there we go. As always, if you listen on Acast, there are links to Bristol Drugs Project website and some of the things that we talked about in this episode. I hope that we'll have the next lot of individual drug episodes beginning in two weeks' time. So watch this space. In the meantime, I've put calls out on Twitter and on Facebook for any myths that you've heard about the drugs that we'll be tackling in the next batch. So do get in touch. And I'll see you next time. You've been listening to Say Why to Drugs with me, Dr Susie Gage. 
The music and editing were by Jim Murray. The artwork is by at my name is Ad. Say Why to Drugs would not have been possible without the generous support of I'm a Scientist Get Me Out of Here, the Medical Research Council, and Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.